And I don't know about you, but I've loved this series over uh, this summer and uh, hearing from different people. It all started with Alice, who uh, talked to us about the God who is faithful. Uh, what a faithful God we serve. And then Mel um, talked about the God who brings hope. Uh, and we need, we need hope, don't we? Especially in the, uh, in the times that we find ourselves in. And, and then Julian talked about the God who provides for us. And then last week we heard from Paul who talked about the God who notices, who sees. And today we're talking about the God who, who changes everything. And in a moment, I want to just unpack a little bit of what we just heard. Uh, they're read to us so well from John chapter 3. But before I do that, I'm just going to, uh, I'd like us to, to turn to Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament. And in verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I open my Bible and start reading genealogies, you know, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, half the time I can't say the names, but also I find myself just flicking through those to the next bit. I don't know if anyone else identifies with that, but that's how often I do. But uh, there are moments when it's, it's really important for us to look and see where people, uh, the lines that people are coming from. And here, Matthew, right at the beginning of the New Testament, is telling us that Jesus the Messiah is the son, uh, comes from David's line and from Abraham's line. So Jesus here, what Matthew is trying to, to, to show us is that Jesus redefines history. You know, the Old Testament throughout the Old Testament, right from the book of Genesis through to the book of Malachi, shows us, points us to a coming Messiah. And then Matthew here, right at the very first verse in the first chapter, tells us that Jesus the Messiah is here. And he says that from the offspring of David, uh, God promised that from this line would come a king who would reign forever. Nathan prophesied this to David in 2 Samuel 7. And this promise is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. And uh, there's so many places that we could look at, and we haven't got time to look at them all now, but I'm just going to pick three. So in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. And then Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 talks about the days are coming when, uh, when a righteous saviour from the line of David will reign as king. And then in Ezekiel 37, uh, verse 24 and 25, it talks about a king from David will reign forever. And we could go on. This is repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And also, Matthew says, that the son is the son of Abraham. He comes from Abraham's line. And in Genesis 12, we read God speaking to Abraham. And he said, I will make you a great nation. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Kings will come from your line. So that there's prophecies, there's words from God right the way through the Old Testament. And Matthew is saying, right at the very beginning, in the first verse of the New Testament, he is saying, the king has come. The king has come. And he changes everything. So there's nothing in history that's accidental. Everything in the Old Testament it is announcing that the king will come. So Jesus is he's right at the center of history. I mean, even when we look at history and we, we look at BC, before Christ, and, and AD, 
AD is an, um, Anno Domini, which is Latin for the year of the Lord. And it refers to the birth of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is right at the center of history. So how does Jesus change everything? Well, whenever we find ourselves caught in sin, Jesus gives us a fresh start. Whenever we find ourselves caught in sin, and and I'm sure we can all identify with that, we all at times find ourselves or have found ourselves caught in sin, and Jesus offers us a fresh start. In Matthew 1, in verse 3, as we start to look through that genealogy, it talks about Judah and Tamar, who were twins by incest. In verse 6, it talks about David, who committed adultery with uh, the wife of Uriah and then had Uriah murdered. Uh, Then we have a list of evil king after evil king who led people into idolatry, resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem and deportion into Babylon, then then back from Babylon. And story after story of people disobeying God. So why is the genealogy of Jesus so full of people who have fallen short? I don't know about you, but if I was to pick a genealogy for Jesus, I think I would try and pick quite a good one. You know, people who'd lived a good, wholesome life. But no, but this is the good news. That God offers us, no matter what we've been through, no matter what's gone on in our past or even with our parents or grandparents or anything, God offers us a fresh start. And that's the good news. Then in verse um, 18 of Matthew 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now that word birth in the Greek means Genesis. And God is taking us back to, to the very beginning, bringing a new start, a new Genesis, as it were. And then in verse 21, We often read this at Christmas, don't we? And when the angel speaks to Joseph and says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the reason Jesus came. He came to to save us from our sins so that we can have a relationship with God restored. And, And that brings us nicely to this passage in John 3 that we just had read to us. The story of an encounter that Nicodemus had with Jesus. And in verse 1, uh, we discover that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, sometimes when we use the term Pharisee, we think of someone who uh, is maybe a little bit self-righteous or even hypocritical a little bit. But in in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they were highly respected. They uh, They were zealous for God and masters of the biblical text. They were, they were high up in, in society. They were highly respected. They were like the select group of people, the, the top of the pile. And also in, in, in verse 1 of John 3, we read that Nicodemus is not only a Pharisee, but he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a Sanhedrin. Now, Sanhedrins, were, there were only 71 of them in that group. And, and these were some of the most powerful people in Israel in their day. And we read in verse 2 that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Now, we're not totally sure why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, 
But I suspect it was something to do with the fact that he was so, he was so highly respected and thought of. And I'm sure he had been, you know, he'd studied scripture and the, the Old Testament. And he knew that there was a Messiah coming. And maybe he just thought, could he be the one? And so he goes and sees Jesus secretly at night, so he's not seen. And, and you know, for many, of our, uh, many people in, in our world today, that's how they have to meet. They have to meet secretly. In countries like Afghanistan, which we've heard so much about over these last few days, if you convert to Christianity there and you're discovered, then you'll be killed. And so for many, they have to meet in secret. And Nicodemus came to Jesus secretly at night. And we read that Jesus, he kind of replies to Nicodemus immediately. And Nicodemus hasn't really asked Jesus anything. But in verse 3, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So we know that Nicodemus is, a, is in a select group. He's a Pharisee, he's part of the Sanhedrin, one of the best, one of the most powerful people in Israel. Isn't it stunning that Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, even if you are top of the pile, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, he's confused by this. And in verse 4 we read, he says, how, how is it possible to be born again? Do I have to enter a second time into my mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, I, I, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus that there is, a, there is obviously a, a natural human birth, and then there's a spiritual birth where we're reborn afresh, where Jesus gives us a fresh start. Nicodemus is still confused by this. And in verse 9, he says, how can this be? You see, Nicodemus, he's dedicated his whole life to studying the Scripture. And, and he knows that you know, here, Jesus is just like turning everything upside down for him. You know, Nicodemus has been taught that you become part of God's kingdom by, by behaving in the right way, by doing the right things, by following the law. And, and that's the way he had lived all this time. He'd never heard anyone say to him about being born again. So he was, he was, he was unsure about what Jesus was really saying. And, and then Jesus said to him, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. And, and then I think Jesus kind of takes a little bit of, um, well, maybe not pity is the wrong word, but he, he, he's kind to Nicodemus. And, and, he, and he refers to a passage in the Old Testament where when Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, and he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus is referring to this story in Numbers 21 that, that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. And the children of Israel at the time were getting bitten by poisonous snakes and dying from them. And so God told Moses to make a, a snake, a bronze snake, and to hold it up. And any time anyone was bitten by a poisonous snake and they looked at the bronze snake, then they would be healed. And, and Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in the same way, everyone who looks, everyone who sees me will know, and knows me, 
will have, will be saved and have eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but my knowledge of Nicodemus was limited to that passage. And as I was looking a bit further, I discovered Nicodemus comes up a couple of other times. And um, the next time we read about Nicodemus is in John again. John chapter 7 and verse 45. And now this is when Jesus has been caught. Uh, I mean, he's been, stu- he's been causing quite a stir. And uh, the Sanhedrin have heard about this and they, they don't know what to do about him. That Jesus is causing them a bit of a problem. And uh, in verse 45 of John 7, it says, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus, here he is, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? So here, Nicodemus, he's he's had this encounter with Jesus where he's been faced with the reality of the truth of who Jesus is. And he's here with uh, the rest of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and, and people are talking negatively about Jesus. And here, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus and he says, hang on a minute. Doesn't our law state that we need to hear them out? Let's invite him in so we can hear him for ourselves. And then the last time we read about Nicodemus is in John chapter 19 and uh, in verse 38. And this takes place just after Jesus uh, has died on a cross. And most of the disciples have kind of scattered. They've gone off. If you remember, Peter sorry, has denied Jesus three times. And uh, Jesus has has, has died on this cross. And uh, in verse 38, it says this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. As far as I'm aware, this is the first time we read about a secret follower of Jesus. And there's millions of them now in, in our world that we live now, Jesus was a disciple of Jesus, so Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Now, listen to this. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. From what I understand, that's a lot of spices and very, very expensive. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial system or burial custom. So Joseph, is, is a, he's also a Sanhedrin. He's a secret disciple of Jesus. And Joseph is accompanied by Nicodemus, who had this encounter with Jesus, which changed his life forever. And now Jesus and Nicodemus wrap Jesus' body in spices and linen and bury him in a tomb. Now, why is this significant? Well, 
In those days, as it says, uh, you know, it says it, it, was the, it was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs to do this. But that was for normal, that was for normal people, you know, people when it, that died normally. But not if you were a criminal. Not if you were di- died crucified on a cross. You were just left to the vultures and the foxes to eat and to decay. There wasn't a burial custom for you. And so this, these, so, I don't know if you can imagine this for a moment, but just thinking here, this, this is something that people would have been talking about because they would have gone, what's going on here? Why is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus taking Jesus' body, treating it in the most expensive of spices, wrapping in linen and putting him in a tomb? What's going on here? And the, the significance of this is that for Nicodemus, he'd gone public. No longer was he a secret follower of Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea. They were willing to count the cost and follow Jesus no matter what. I I remember a time when I was in in Iraq um, a few years ago. Obviously, I haven't been able to travel for um, a year year and a half. But um, we were in Iraq and this was just after the Christians had fled from Mosul. And um, because of ISIS and they'd pushed them out. And um, this man, who he was internally displaced, he was living in the Nineveh plain, and um, he met us at the airport. And one of the first things I noticed about this man was a, a cross tattooed on his hand. And uh, he took us in his car, and, and I noticed on his car, on the rear view mirror, hanging a cross. And, and then when we got to his house, well, it wasn't a house, it, it, he was internally displaced, so he was in a, living in a tent, and uh, he had a, a, it was a cross used, uh, put on his tent with fairy lights. And one of the church leaders who I took on this trip, who came with me, just said to this man, this must be one of the most dangerous places in the world to do that. Do you feel any apprehension? And, and immediately this man said no. And, and the church leader said to him, so he asked him, what motivates you to do this? And and this is what he said. He said, Jesus has never apologized for me. So why should I apologize for him? These believers in Iraq who had lost everything, who had been driven out of their homes, seen members of their family killed, had had lost uh, their livelihoods, were willing to to follow Jesus. They they, they didn't consider themselves heroes or or anything special. They were just simply following Jesus. And I just want to finish um, by sharing a story with you of a man who I've recently heard about um, who has had a huge impact on me in his story. And his name is uh, Wang Mindel from China. And he... During the Cultural uh, Revolution in China, Wang Mindao was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison for following Jesus and for leading the church. And as he was getting close to the end of his sentence, one of the officers came to, hit to Wang Mindao and said, if you sign this declaration where you deny your faith in Jesus and, and promise that you won't, won't talk about Jesus anymore, then we'll set you free. We'll let you go. And I'm sure they caught him at a weak moment. I mean, he was probably thinking about his friends, his family who he hadn't seen for years, the church. And he decided, 
to sign this declaration and walked out of prison, a free man. As he was walking away, he, he realized he'd, he'd made a, a terrible mistake. And so he went back to the prison and he said, look, please, will you tear that confession up? He said, I, I will never deny Jesus. And for as long as I live, I will tell Jesus, I'll tell people about Jesus whenever I meet them. And they put him back in prison. They sentenced him to another 22 and a half years. And for a lot of that time, he was in solitary confinement. And he said, I found it really tough because I knew God had called me to be an evangelist. And, and I wanted to tell people about Jesus. And he said, but being in, 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 in isolation, being on my own in a cell, how, how can I tell people about Jesus? And he said one day when he was praying, he heard noises coming from the corner of his cell. And it was where he had a, a hole, a pit, where basically that was his toilet. And he suddenly realized that all the cells were, were connected through the sewage pipes. So he decided that every day he was going to preach the gospel down the toilet. <laughs> he, he did this for seven years, not hearing anything because he was never allowed out for seven years. The first day when he was allowed out into, a court, into the court grounds, and uh, the, the, he, was, he met other prisoners, and he discovered that over the course of seven years, 96 prisoners had chosen to follow Jesus. Friends, Jesus changes everything. You could be in the middle of a prison with nothing, and if we submit our lives to Jesus, he can, he can use us, he can change everything. And Jesus changes everything for us through what he did on the cross, making it possible for us to know him. He said this, Wang Mindel, when we spoke to him, he said, I had no Bible, no pulpit, no audience, no paper and pen. I could do nothing, nothing except get to know God. And for 20 years... That was the greatest relationship I'd ever known. Why Mindau discovered that God changes everything. 